0: You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangaea.com. This is uh, one of those talks that when you rehearse it in your brain before you put it to paper, you think to yourself, this is going to be fun. And then halfway through the preparation process, you think to yourself, there's way too much to talk about. And then towards the end of the kind of process, you're like, well, let's just talk about it anyway. So, <laughs> so we're, we're going to go for it. And if you haven't been with us uh, before, my name's Kurt. I'm uh, the lead pastor here. I do most of the teaching and vision, that kind of stuff. We've got some other folks on our pastoral team and other people who serve and make this thing happen. And... um. I am excited. We're, we've been looking at the book of Revelation kind of in big picture strokes, right? There's, 20, um, there's 22 chapters. And so uh, we were not gonna go through those sort of week by week or anything like that, but really trying to just give folks handles for what this book does and how to sort of navigate it. Because what I've noticed about my own journey with Jesus is that, the picture i have of jesus really shapes my experience of god and i think oftentimes the the picture of jesus looks pretty consistent until we get to revelation and once we're in revelation we see these images of a god who is destructive and ready to burn this mother down right like this and and it's like I saw Jesus in the Gospels, and yes, he's fiery, and he's, he's ready to say what needs to be said, but it, it, you sense there's love there, and then you get to Revelation, and you're like, where's the love? A couple glimpses of it, but it seems pretty intense. And uh, we, we talked about one of the problems is that we, we often fail to read Revelation as a text of apocalypse apocalyptic, right? Like like we we pull revelation out of two contexts, its literary context. So this exists within a certain kind of body of literature we call it apocalyptic literature, very poetic in nature, very image saturated in nature. And so if you strip it from that context, Well, when you hear an image about a beast coming out of the sea, you might think to yourself an actual beast coming out of a sea. Or you might go back to your childhood days of watching Power Rangers and like one of those things that come out of the sea, right? What are those things called? Droids, right? Like, and it's just coming out of the sea and it's going to go conquer something, you know. And interestingly enough, it doesn't work that way. We, we literalize something that an author never meant to literalize, and that's a problem. And so, so talking about genre has been very important. Um, but we also want to talk about timing. What is this actually speaking to? And what we've said, of course, is that most of Revelation is speaking into the writer John's immediate circumstances. He, he calls it a letter. It's a circular, circular letter that's going to go to seven churches, but it's a letter. I mean, you don't write a letter and think to yourself, I hope in 2,000 years someone will finally read this thing. You know what I mean? Like, that'd be very, like, I am very frustrated often with the United States Post Service. Like, like I'm, I get two day shipping and it comes in four, you know, but I, I can't imagine sending a letter and hoping that someone gets it two millennia later, you know? And and that's how the the revelation of John is often read. And so we've tried to really root this thing. That's my introduction. We call it the dragon and the sea because those are two images of evil in the book. A dragon being uh, identified as Satan, the devil, that old serpent from old, right? And and the sea is actually in the Jewish imagination the place where chaos happens. And so that's why there's a beast that comes out of the sea. It's chaotic because that's where the beasts kind of live, right? And uh, so the sea is this destructive image of evil that by the end of the book, the author has to explicitly say, when all of this is put back together, the sea is gone. doesn't mean there's not water in God's restored world. It means that the evil chaos that needs to be tamed has been tamed once and for all. And so... So that's where we've been. And I'm going to read you a chapter, like a full-blown chapter of this thing. And it's, it's pretty gruesome in its language. And um, we're going to read it now, let it hit us, and then we're going to come back to this passage at the very end of our time together. And we're going to try and fill in some gaps along the way and see if we can get this done by about uh, 1130. So let's see where we go, okay? Is that, is that fair? Not really going to lead you beyond where we're going, but we'll get there. Okay, okay, whatever, whatever, every week. Okay, so <laughs> Revelation chapter 17 starts like this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke with me. Come, he said, I will show you the judgment upon the great prostitute who is seated on the deep waters. You hear the water metaphor already? Yeah, just, again, remember the image. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth have become drunk with the wine of her explicit whoring. By the way, other translations use that language even more. I think this one's trying to mix it up with a little more prostitute harlot. But, but understand, these are all very vile ways of talking about This image of a person. Then he brought me in a spirit-inspired trance to a desert. There I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, and she glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand, she held a cup full of the vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. A name, a mystery was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the vile things of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of Jesus' witnesses, I was completely stunned when I saw her. Then the angel said to me, why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come. Very confused, right? We don't know what this beast is actually doing in time, but apparently there's a beast. Okay, continuing. I just noticed that again. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names haven't been written in the scroll of life from the time the earth was made, will be amazed when they see the beast, because it was and is not and will again be present. This calls for an understanding mind. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Hold on to that seven mountains thing. We're gonna come back to it later today. Verse 10, five kings have fallen. The one is and the other hasn't come yet. When the king comes, he must remain only for a short time. As for the beast that was and is not, it is itself an eighth king that belongs to the seven, and it is going to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they will receive royal authority for an hour along with the beast. These kings will be of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, they will make war on the Lamb. Remember, the Lamb is Jesus. They will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will emerge victorious. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Those, who, those with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples, crowds, nations, And languages, as for the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will destroy her and strip her bare. They will devour her flesh and burn her with fire because God moved them to carry out his purposes. Can I pause here for a second and just notice something? The angel is trying to clarify what this is all about. And we're all sitting here saying, we still don't get it, dude, right, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when Jesus tells those parables and the disciples come back and say, can you help us? And you walk away and you're like, that kind of helped, but seriously, like give us a clue here, you know? Like it helped, but it doesn't, this is exactly what we're experiencing right now. And that's okay. Don't act like, you know, you shouldn't get it. um, Because I don't know that I get it, but we'll continue. That is why they will be of one mind and give their royal power to the beast until God's words have been accomplished, the woman who you, whom you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. All right. So last week, we talked about revelation and worship. We've introduced worship, uh, this idea of incivility, and witness as some of the main themes and grids through which we can read this book to sort of unpack this wild imagery. This week, I want to talk about Revelation being uncivil. And this is where it gets really fun and really offensive, depending on your backstory. So um, I certainly don't intend to be offensive, but this is one of those that, that if, if we're going to be honest about what the New Testament seems to say about these matters, we have to hit them Right, right on. Like we have to really lean in. And so uncivil, I, I want to just say really quick that I think people want to tame the Bible. And so passages like that are scary to read because they sound pretty horrible. They, they talk about like a woman in a way that we think is offensive. I want to talk about that, by the way, if you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I talked about a prostitute this way that's offensive. Don't you know how many people are forced into prostitution? absolutely, this is not that. This is a different kind of prostitution. We're going to talk about that on the latter half of the talk. So don't let that comment, if that's kind of in your mind, sort of ruin where we're going for you, because I promise that'll be dealt with. Um, but, But know that this is a really big deal. And what I've noticed is that when we try and tame passages like this, the temptation is then to tame human beings as a result. That in, in, in Christian history, what we've done is we've we've tamed passages so that we can impose power over people. We're going to use this Bible passage, passage to tame human beings. And it can be done in all kinds of ways. And by the way, we tame it in a way that's actually a wielding of power, right? So So there's multiple ways people deal with it. Like one would be just relegate that to the future, but it's the kind of future that depends on all of these factors coming together, including Israel wins, the United States wins, and therefore Israel needs to have all of the land that's around them cleared out of anyone who's not Israeli. Have you heard some of this? Christians in America will give millions and millions of dollars to organizations that are ready to wipe out settlements, or actually to impose settlements of Israeli people into the lands that Palestinians live on, and we wonder why there's violence there. And so we can tame this by relegating it to the future so it fits our agenda for politics in the present, yeah? Or we can just ignore hard stuff and use them in other sad ways to tame people. And in America, we like to tame the message of the New Testament. It's actually our story. Our story in America is, can we use this book to promote our cause? Conquering, enslavement, the war for independence, all of these had the New Testament as its source material. But all of them used the source material wrong. They were able to tame it just right to make sure that those folks who were picking cotton and doing labor for no pay listened, did what they were told, tamed it just enough to give them enough space to say, we're done being taxed by the people across the ocean. We're going to fight for our rights. And what comes out of that story is this folk religion that sometimes is called Christianity and sometimes called civil religion. And I'm going to call it civil religion today. And I want to suggest that what we have in, American, uh, in our American context is no different than the kind of civil religion we were talking about in previous weeks. Worship the emperor, worship the embodiment of the emperor who is Roma, worship victory, right? The victory God, worship these gods so that your imagination has now been centered on how great Rome is. What happens when you kind of like replace Roma and the emperor with things that feel almost Christian enough and create your own sort of system of life and religion? Well, you get something like, God bless America, land that I love, right? So, maybe you've seen this before. Here's a flag, and then there's a flag. So, I grew up in a junior high school where we had a Christian flag and we had a, um, what is that called? The American flag, right? And we would pledge to both, but I hope you noticed something. Do you notice the order? This is standard. I've seen them flipped once in a while. But notice the order, even. Like, we want to be a Christian nation. We want to be Christian in our allegiance. So we're going to bring Christianity into empire, into the United States sort of thing. But at the end of the day, the American flag is often the one that gets put on the top. Very interesting. If you go to some kids' programs... Uh, built into them, like a program like Awana for children. Not all versions of Iwana, but a lot of the old versions of Iwana. if you've heard of this, um, you know what I'm talking about. If not, it's like a VBS that happens every week for kids. Uh, It starts with a flag salute. Some of us are like, so? We live here, we like America. And some of us have been like, oh, that feels dirty for all kinds of reasons. It goes even further. There's pledges. I don't know if you've seen these, right? The next one here. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path and will hide its words in my heart so that I might not sin against God. But then after saying that pledge, which sure, that's sort of okay. Like I don't have a lot of beef with that pledge. You you go on to sin against God by pledging your allegiance to something that's not Jesus. What? Doesn't make sense to me. We we put the Bible next to some thing we call the Christian flag, which clearly had to have been made up in some like Christian school somewhere someday. Like, hey, how do we get people to think about Jesus and the flag? You know, like I, that has no precedent in anything that I know about. There, there's been this unholy allegiance between the goodness of the United States and the blessing of the God of the Bible. And there's various versions of this. Here's a painting that was floating around a few years ago by John McNaughton Fine Art. Can't say words. Uh, Jesus holding the Constitution, a young boy pointing to the Constitution, you know, and... Um, all of the people, right? So there's a liberal judge on the far right bottom corner because he's pro-abortion. And then you've got like the uh, Abe Lincoln who's on his knees before the Lord, just, you know, because he's gonna liberate slaves. Even though one time he said, if I didn't have to liberate a single slave and could keep the unity of this place, I'd just go with that, right? And we just are like, oh, he's so abolitionist. Well, no, it's practical. Um, sorry, I know it sounds so pessimistic, right? But, but let's, let's be real about it. Then you've got George Washington there. And and, I, and you read Revelation and you ask yourself, how is this and that okay? There's a scholar in the '60s, and in the '60s they're they're doing all kinds of weird stuff, right? Isn't that that's true of the '60s? I think. And well, the scholar is tapping into something what would have been weird at the time, but I think is so relevant. His name is uh, Robert uh, Bella. Listen to how he describes religion in America. I think it's really important. He says Behind the civil religion, at every point, lie biblical archetypes Exodus, chosen people, promised land, new Jerusalem, sacrificial death and rebirth. But it is also genuinely American and genuinely new. It has its own prophets and its own martyrs, its own sacred events and its own sacred places, its own solemn rituals and symbols. It's concerned that America be a society as perfectly in accord with the will of God as men can make it and a light to all the nations. What he's saying is. All of these biblical images, all of these sort of like exodus, came across the waters. Chosen people. This is our land. Anyone who's on our land, we're going to get rid of because God has chosen this moment for us. Preachers talking about um, people who are indigenous to this place as though they are Canaanites during this period of our country sort of organizing and founding. This is the new Israel. Weird, right? I believed this stuff for most of my life. 9-11 happened. Let's go get some Muslims, right? It's a problem over there. Fourth of July happens. Proud to be an American. Shed a tear during the song. And look, to be clear, I love the United States. Love it. Absolutely love living here. Love being a citizen here. I think it has opened up some cool opportunities for me and my family and my friends. But it does come with a cost, it does come with a price often that price is for people across the world. Sometimes it's also here in our own city. Then when you tie the flourishing of America to Jesus or anything pertaining to religion, what you've done is you've co-opted Jesus for selfish gain. And the writer of Revelation is warning us, don't go there. So that's our introduction this morning. Let's keep going. Um, (laughs) So American Christianity struggles with a contested allegiance. I think Revelation is probably the book of the Bible that we need more than ever during this season of our political life. Many people, I would say in our context, were very shocked by this last presidential election. It was harmful because of the rhetoric associated with the campaign of the current president. It was wounding. And yet, I really struggle to think of a single president for whom I could say they really look like Jesus to me they really look like someone I would want to like, give my trust to in some sense. I mean, I, I look at George W. Bush, nice guy. You meet him, you're going to be so like, you're going to be treated well. I mean, I, nice guy. But then we're like, but he started that war, right? And a lot of us are frustrated by that. Barack Obama comes along, very nice guy, classy, smart, first black president, a lot of good there. And then he starts killing people with drones, and no one talks about it, because at least he's not George W. Bush. What? Quit saying Obama's not a Christian, right? I and mean, there's all these wars about who's Christian now? Which pre- The writer of Revelation will say, look at their fruit. In the role of president, following Jesus is really, 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 really hard. And by the way, I'm not making a pronouncement about either of their faith. I, I believe they're both sincere. I think they both, in their heart and mind, believe they're doing the best they can to follow Jesus. But the problem is that we have a contested allegiance in this context. And so a lot of us have allowed ourselves to say, yeah, you can go kill people and still follow God. That's easy. Put on your soldier hat this time, put on your commander in chief hat at this time, and then at the next time, go take communion, go read your daily devotional. You see, what happens when civil religion and Christianity get too close, it starts to get really messy. And the writer of our passage in chapter 17 says this is like sexual immorality. This is like going going to bed with someone that really isn't going to help you. And so what we're doing in this series, and by the way, this is uncivil day, so this is why we're getting all blunt, I suppose. What we're trying to do is say, okay, what if we read Revelation on its own terms so that when we see these sorts of mixtures, these contested allegiances, we can say, wait a second. I'm not gonna judge your faith. I'm not gonna judge your commitment to God. I'm not gonna judge your commitment to Jesus. Maybe you're not a pacifist like I am or whatever, right? Like, fine. But when we see God being used as a prop for harming human beings, we should start smelling the poo-poo really quickly. Yeah. So how do we re Revelation? Here's our mantra. We're gonna say it together again, again because my goal is to indoctrinate you with this slogan every single week so that when you are at Thanksgiving and they say, what about the apocalypse? You can say, well, it's a revelation of John to Jesus for the church against the empire during the first century, case case closed. And you can be like, oh, what is that? Yeah, no, that sounds like heresy. And that's okay, because it will to them. Um, Yes, so the first book of the Bible is a revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century. Very important that we capture that vision. And of course, when we say against the empire, we're not saying just against a governmental structure, but the invisible spiritual forces that have given power to those structures. The Satan, the beasts, all of these things, all of these images of demonic evil that we have in the book. It's all wrapped up in that. And of course, it's the seven churches. We've got a map here really quick, just as a way of reminder. We have, a, yep, there it is. And uh, we know John is exiled to this little island about 37 or so miles off the coast of Turkey there. And uh, these are all ancient cities in Turkey where the letter is to be circulated. And we've said this already, but just in case... We need to just really nail this down. Revelation invites followers of Jesus into a life of worship, into an uncivil view of empire, and into patterns of witness to the slaughtered lamb. So if you haven't caught on yet, last week is worship, this week is uncivil. Next week is gonna be what? Witness! Yeah, 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 good, good, you caught on. Um, So I actually think through stuff, it's weird, right? Um, And so, yes, yes. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we're going to get into some weird symbols and imagery. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I I think it's worth just a quick recap. Worshiping the dragon and beasts. Who are these dragons and beasts? Here's a reminder. You saw this slide two weeks ago. The dragon is the devil. The sea beast is likely the military and political power of the Roman emperors. Now, Now, I'm telling you this, like, oh, yeah, sure, Kurt, that sounds great, right? I don't have time to defend this. And so at the end of this series, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point you to every helpful book on this topic so that you can go explore more, okay? So I don't expect that you just take my word for it, but I will point you towards the resources that help you dig deeper, if that makes sense, okay? but I'm going to say it like it's fact because I believe it's fact, but I want you to explore whether you trust the fact that I've given you because it might not be as factual because, well, we live in an age of fake news. Okay, continuing on. Um, Earth Beast promotes the imperial cult by setting up the image of the beast and giving it godlike characteristics, right? So, So you've got the beast of the sea that seems to be this sort of machine that's conquering the world. We might call it the Pax Romana, this sort of vision of the world being carved out by Rome. And then you've got the earth beast who is the promoter of this worship of this imperial machine, right? Go worship the beast. Go worship the beast. And everyone's favorite number has to come to mind at some point. Yeah. Oh, that slides upside down. It's actually 999. Sorry. 999. It's a bargain. That's that's all it means. 666. Did you know that there is a fear of the number 666 in our world? It's very fascinating to me. Um, In fact, there's one county, or actually one city, I believe it's in Louisiana. Let me double check my notes. Yes, in Louisiana, a few years ago, had the option to change their phone prefix from 666 to uh, 749 because residents were tired of the demotic number always being part of their lives, right? And so there's actually a word for the fear of 666 on the next slide here. That's the official <laughs> term, and I'm going to try and pronounce it for you because it's, it's like trying to say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? Like, like you only learn that because it's in a song. But, but this, actually, it was a... A spelling word in my senior year, our teacher gave us the spelling word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's really, yeah. Anyway, so I, I think I could still spell it. But this is hexacosioi hexaphobia. The fear of 666. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's wild, right? And it's understandable. We've made this number into this crazy, scary thing. I'm afraid of 666 in my own way. If you ever see a movie where there's people that are being all like possessed or whatever, it terrifies you to hear them say 666, right? It's freaky. Absolutely. But it's really not that big of a deal, can I be honest? It does come up in, the, in this book, so I want to read you the passage. This is actually in uh, Re- Revelation 13. It starts like this in verse 16. It, this beast it's talking about, right? It forces everyone, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, to have a mark put on their right hand or on their forehead. Most scholars think that when you went to the marketplace, in order to like go and exchange goods and get involved in civil affairs, you would first light an incense to one of the Roman gods. And when you had done that, part of it, kind of like we do on Ash Wednesday, right? You would get a mark either on your hand or your forehead. That's what this passage seems to be looking at. It, verse 17 will not allow anyone to make a purchase or sell anything unless the person has the mark with the beast's name or, num- or the number of its name. So maybe it was numerically put on or who knows. Can you imagine how if you put this into some weird future, it's scary, but if you put it into the first century, it's like, oh, that was happening. That's weird, right? One is, oh my gosh. The other is, that seems kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> like, but but it's there, and and it keeps going. It says this calls for wisdom. The, John wants us to have wisdom in this situation. Let the one who understands calculate the beast's number. For it's a human being's number. Its number is six hundred and sixty-six. It could be pretty weird, right? So like Ronald Reagan was apparently 666 at one point. There's a few popes that were 666 at one point. A lot of people have been 666 thanks to Christians trying to calculate the end of the world. I hope I'm not 666. That'd be the worst, right? Wouldn't that be the worst? Like you wake up one day and you're like, hey, uh, I just found out today that I'm the Antichrist and I didn't know and now I'm apparently going to become evil soon right? I mean, it's such a mystery, except it's not. Look at this. Let's get weird. The top. This is a common practice in the ancient world. Many cultures did this. Um, It's called gematria, I think is how you say it. I always butcher that word. But it's basically when you take numbers and correlate them with letters in your alphabet, and you come up with codes. And it was a way of kind of shorthanding names or places, and so this on the top is the way, if you were to take 666 and translate it into Hebrew characters. OK? Now all of those Hebrew characters that you see Rash, Shemach, etc <laughs> um, those are all the numerals that it would take to come up with one person's spelling: Caesar. Nero. You transliterate into Hebrew, you get Caesar Nero. It adds up to 666. Some of our translations are actually manuscripts, make us really confused because actually in a lot of old manuscripts, it is 616. Any of you ever heard this? 616? Yeah, it's actually really a big deal in scholarship. So so sometimes you have 666, which everyone knows about, but once in a while you have 616 in old manuscripts, and you're like, okay, so how does that work out? That can't be Nero, because 666 is Nero, right? Well, you can kind of do the same sort of thing, and as you do it, uh, when you get to the... Um, Uh, Let me make sure I'm saying this right. If you take the Latin title for Nero, all of a sudden it transliterates to 616, right? So if you take the Greek name, it's 666. If you take the Latin name, it's 616. Both are doing the same thing. So scholars actually have gotten to the point where they say, okay, so the fact that there is a 666 and a 616, and when you compare the two, you still get Caesar Nero, it's pretty good evidence that it's probably just talking about Caesar Nero. Isn't that interesting? But it's all the people that we say it is. It's, it's wild. You do a little, little homework in the ancient world, and you get um, that this is really not that big a deal. You're saying, look, this beast, this, and by the way, the word antichrist isn't in Revelation, so I say antichrist loosely, but this so-called antichrist, it's Nero, Who was the emperor during the tick-up to the destruction of the temple that eventually got carried out in 70 CE? Nero. How was Nero to Christians? Well, we heard he uh, lit them on fire in his garden sometimes as torches. Oh yeah, he was a bad guy. We don't like Nero. Nero would kill people for fun. And so during this time, is actually... Um, this understanding, because Domitian is now emperor about, you know, a few generations later here, a generation later, 90, 95. And he's understood as a second Nero. Some believe he's like Nero reincarnated during this time. And it comes up over and over again. And so all of this language, all of these images seem to be pointing to There is a system of empire that's going on in the world. It is oppressing the poor. It is oppressing slaves. It is making life hectic and unsafe for people who are marginalized. And you know the number of the person who started all this chaos during our generation. Just go look at what Nero started and what Domitian is continuing. You got the number. So, can you, can you kind of get how uncivil Revelation is really getting? Like, can you kind of see like, how, how it's really using image and metaphor and colorful language to really say, look, the, the way the world is is not the way God wants it to be. And it's, it's going down. So we have this image in Revelation chapter 17, coming back full circle. And the language is of Babylon, a woman, a prostitute. Babylon again, apparently, because I didn't notice I wrote it once. <laughs> Maybe I should put it five times. Isn't there a TV show? Babylon Five, yeah. For five people who watched Star Trek and then watched the show after Star Trek for two years until that show got. Ca- anyway. Um, It seems to be Rome. Now, if you know the history of the Jewish people, they didn't just have a massive cataclysmic occurrence in 70 CE, shortly after Paul and Jesus. Back in 586 BCE, Babylon comes into Israel, wipes out everything, destroys the temple the first time, So can you sort of start to imagine, like, Babylon destroys the temple the first time, Rome destroyed it another time. Can you already start to imagine why the author of Revelation would, like, link these two situations? And what we seem to have is the author is saying, look, it's another Babylon reborn, They destroyed our temple all over again. They're trying to take captive our imaginations. But don't you remember the three Hebrew children who refused to eat the empire's food? Don't you remember Daniel and his diligence to be um, a presence of shalom in the situation, but also not compromising who God had him to be? Don't you remember what Babylon was like? Rome is Babylon all over again. To remind us, Revelation chapter 17 puts it this way. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And those who live on the earth have become drunk with the wine of her whoring. A name, a mystery was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and vile things of the earth. They are remembering their past and reshaping their present with this long-storied reality. Why in the world do we have to use that kind of language? Well, here's what N.T. Wright helps us make very clear. By the way, great little book. If you are like, I want to read something, but it has to be accessible and break it down for me, Revelation for Everyone by N.T. Wright, that's a great little devotional resource. If you ever thought about doing devotions in Revelation, you can now. Have fun with that. Tell me how it goes. He says, these sorts of prostitutes have no need to sell themselves. So, so pause that, right? So, so he says, look, it's not the kind of prostitute who the empire creates out of desperation. It's not the kind of people who are at the bottom of the situation, the bottom of the economic situation, the bottom of privilege who out of desperation to feed their kids, to make sure that things are livable, or maybe against their will entirely, become prostituted because that's the way the forces around them have forced them to be. This is the kind of person who has it all and still feels like they want to flaunt it, still wants to sort of like say, hey, don't you want some of me? Don't you want more of me? so they have no need to sell themselves, but who have discovered it's a quick way to make quite a lot of money and that if you play your cards right, you can maintain a high social status with fancy clothes, flittering jewels, and the finest pearls. So we are invited to ask this question. Is compromise an option? That's the question Revelation is trying to get these seven churches to really ask. Is compromise an option? What does it look like to live in a world where the city's surrounded by seven hills, by the way, that's why we know this is talking about Rome, the chapter literally says, it's this city with seven hills. And uh, all throughout ancient literature, anytime you talk about the city with seven hills, it's always Rome, every single time. Do we give partial allegiance to the Roman system? Like how much can we opt in before we've been co-opted? I remember in youth group, I was a youth pastor for a while. I'd get this question once in a while about like, like, how far can I go, Kurt, before it's sin with my girlfriend or boyfriend, right? I get that question all the time. It's wild. And I'd say, maybe we shouldn't think about, like, lines, but we should think about honoring Jesus with our bodies, right? I tried to reframe it for him, but it's really hard, right? But, but that, that that kind of like, how far can I go here? It's always a question we're tempted to ask, and it's always asking the wrong kind of question, How do we shape our situation around Jesus of Nazareth and allow what we do to be corresponding with that reality? Michael Gorman breaks it down for us. This is what the early Christians would have been dealing with. Should we or can we go to the pagan temples to do our banking or purchase meat? Should we acknowledge the sovereignty of the emperor when asked to do so at a public event in the precincts of the temple or at another of the many events in his honor. Where do we go to do all of these normal things? The early Christians had to ask themselves whose allegiance mattered more. And there was a cost. John ended up in exile. And so I want to suggest something as we close today that Babylon holds captive our imaginations then and now. There are always going to be new Babylons until God comes to sort it all out. We find ourselves in a new Babylon. And there is a lot of great things about being part of this particular Babylon. There are freedoms that no other country in the world has experienced like we experience. There are opportunities like most other countries probably don't experience. But there is a cost when our imagination slowly gets co-opted by privilege, by opportunity, by um, you know the American dream. And the author of Revelation, in chapter eighteen, this is how he answers a question about should we go to bed with the empire or not? Come out of her, my people. So you don't partake in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. This, my friends, is a sexual metaphor. Stop the infidelity, even if you've started. Pull away from that. Pull away from those tempt- those temptations. Don't get any. I always say this is like getting spiritual STDs, by the way. I think that's pretty funny. I don't know. Maybe you do too. Um, It's kind of offensive. I I apologize. But yes, he's saying, look, you you don't have to be co-opted by this. You don't have to figure out what it means to be in love with King Jesus and the flag. You don't have to mix these worlds in ways that put you at such odds that you don't even know how to navigate your world. You can be different. You can be the alternative. You can look and love and lean into the life of Jesus. And so as we close today, I want to invite us to follow Jesus, to give allegiance to the author of love, and to be part of the world God is creating. Where is your place in the world that God is creating? Where is your place in this other city? There's Babylon, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, there's also a new Jerusalem. In that city, there's no more crying, mourning, pain, or tears. In that city, everyone has enough to eat. In that city, there's not anything that's gonna draw our imagination away from the slaughtered land. The challenge of following Jesus in a privileged empire is navigating where our love will be, where our compassion will be and which world we're helping create.